You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. I love the, the lines to that song when it speaks of these ancient words and how they impart life. And I wonder when we come and start thinking about the Old Testament, do we think about the words of the Old Testament as imparting life? Or do we think that that only happens when we get to Jesus Christ? And I think sometimes we do fall into that trap and I wanna confront uh, that in this series. We are taking a, a break from the Gospel of John. We've uh, finished uh, Gospel of John through uh, chapter 12. There's quite a break there, so we're gonna take a break like we usually do in the summer. We're going to do a, a different uh, series. And this summer we're discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. We talked about uh, generally what the Old Testament was all about. We talked about uh, creation last time, and then this time we're gonna talk about discovering Jesus in uh, the characters of the Old Testament. Our boys, like a lot of boys and girls, are attracted to superheroes. We like watching superhero movies and shows at our house, and I'm sure all the action in those movies and all of that uh, is something that appeals to the boys. Boys will be boys. But we've had the, the conversation about these movies. Some of the conversation have been uh, really interesting. Like, why do you think these movies are so popular? And a more important question is, what makes a superhero? Well, superpowers help. But our conclusion is that superpowers isn't what makes a superhero because there are villains with superpowers, so being a superhero transcends the fact that one has powers or special abilities. Being a, a superhero has to do with risk. It has to do with being willing to give up one's life for the sake of others or for the sake of a, a greater good. What makes a, a good superhero movie has to do with the villain, doesn't it? The more uh, antithetical uh, to the mission and character and purpose of the hero, the better the, the villain is, the better uh, the movie is, the more the villain is willing to do what the hero would never do. This makes for a great movie. Perhaps the villain even has what he or she thinks is a noble purpose, like remedying the fact that the universe is overpopulated. So he's willing to go to some unscrupulous lengths to get what he needs in order to uh, take out a half of the universe's living creatures. If you know what I'm referring to, uh, great uh, Thanos is a great villain simply because he's willing to do what the heroes would never do or they would not allow. Oftentimes, when we read the Old Testament, we read it this way. We read it with what some have called a, a heroes and villains hermeneutic, meaning that there are heroes in the Old Testament and you are to be like those. You are to do what they do. Let them be examples to you. And there are villains in the Old Testament as well. And, and of course, these are the ones you don't want to do what they do. You don't want to be like them. You don't want to follow their example. And in just like the movies the lines get a little blurred 
once in a while. There's no wonder that preaching in pulpit digest found that approximately 85% of sermons on Sunday morning were anthropocentric, meaning that they were human-centered. To say it a different way, 85% of sermons are for the benefit of the hearer, and they are the chief character in the story. The sermon is about you. In other words, when it comes down to it, it's all about you. The sermon might start off with the Bible, but in the end, you're the main character, the protagonist. Joel Osteen made this famous by telegraphing his attentions when he uh, would have his audience hold up their Bibles and repeat after him and say this, this is my Bible I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught from the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. He might say a good thing there or two about the Bible, and it seems uh, that he's holding it as high esteem. But when you listen carefully, what exactly is he holding in high esteem? I, I, I. What is the sermon going to be about I? What does the Bible do? It serves I. It serves me. What is Osteen going to do? He is going to tell you how you can be the best you can be, and he's going to use the Bible to do that. At least that's what he says. It is a means to an end, and the end is self-help, prosperity, drivel. Osteen is low-hanging fruit. I understand that, but grasp my point. There are so many that claim a high view of Scripture that fall into this. They, they approach, uh, especially the Old Testaments, through a, a heroes and villains hermeneutic where the message becomes radically human-centered. And because the heroes and village approach has a a tendency to be human-centered, it often becomes very moralistic then. The moral of the message is do more, try harder, and be like so-and-so, and don't be like him. It's feelings-based. It it takes and it, it fragments the Bible. In that the Old Testament is particularly just a, a bunch of choppy moral lessons. This view seldom sees Christ in the Old Testament. Have you ever been in a church and heard a sermon, and the longer you think about the sermon, it could have been preached anywhere? People would have agreed with it. They would have liked it from basically any way of life, Mormon, Catholic, Muslim, as long as they had the same moral values. There was nothing said that would, be, uh, that would offend any of these groups. In other words, it's Christless. Michael Horton wrote a book about this. He called it Christless Christianity, the Alternative Gospel in the American Church, a book that I would highly recommend you read. Michael Horton says this. He says, Jesus was not a revolutionary because he said that we should love and that we should love God and love each other. Moses said that first. So did Buddha, Confucius, countless other religious leaders. God loves you doesn't stir the world's opposition. However, 
start talking about God's absolute authority, his holiness, Christ's substitutionary atonement, justification apart from works, the necessity of the new birth, repentance, baptism, communion, and a future judgment in the mood of the room changes considerably. What is easier, though? I mean, I, I saw this in my time in the, the Central District, not so much in the Central District, but among some that were speaking loudly. We, we shouldn't talk about substitutionary atonement. That is a, a problem. Instead, we just need to focus on the fact that God loves everyone the less controversial things. It's much easier and less controversial to make the Bible about morality, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, how God loves you. And that leads to what Horton would call a Christless Christianity. Now, at this point, I want to offer a, a word of, of caution, not that I haven't been so far, but what I want to say now is that we need not go too far and say that the Bible is void of many kinds of examples on how to live and how not to live. We need to keep in mind what the Bible says. Romans 15.4 makes it so clear. For everything that was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says this. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. A few verses later. Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. James says it this way in chapter five. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those words blessed who remained steadfast. You heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord's compassionate and is merciful. So for James, using the example of Job's steadfastness to produce steadfastness in us isn't forbidden. Just like he uses Elijah a few verses later in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Now, just because we want rain, I'm going to read the next verse. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the whole earth bore its fruit. What is the point that James is making by using Elijah as an example here? Well, it's found in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. In other words, Elijah should be an example of prayer to all of us. So, so we can't go so far in this hero is in villain's approach and the warnings of it and just say the Bible is, is void of, of any kind of examples to follow. It is. So I think that a strict heroes and villains approach to the Old Testament is, is dangerous. But so is suggesting that biography and narrative in the Old Testament do not contain instruction that is useful for us today. So we do not throw out those stories, but we take and we use them in a more Christ-centered way. We don't want to be man-centered. We don't want to go off the cliff in that direction. Just think about the story of David and Goliath. We read some of this at the beginning. We 
mentioned it in passing uh, last week, how it's often portrayed in the heroes and villains scheme. Goliath represents life's big troubles and you are David. You put yourself into the story and you can defeat the, the troubles and trials of life. But just take a moment and listen to what David said to that giant. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. We see clearly that the story is more than just a moralistic lesson about giants of life. David makes it clear. It is God that saves. The battle is his. The reason that the giants in life can be defeated is solely because of him and him alone. It's about trusting in the one that is able to save. But at the same time, are there not lessons for us here? Of course there are. But we must be sure of several things when we come to, to stories like this and we think about uh, characters in the Old Testament. For instance, we must make sure that the central theme is God and not us. The Bible is a book about God. We also must recognize that there is a difference between Christian morality and moralism. Moralism gets the cart before the horse and tells us that we must be moral first of all. That our goal is, is to be moral. Christian morality teaches us that we need Jesus. We need a right relationship with him and his grace in us then is how we become moral. Morality in any sense in our lives is because of the work of the Spirit, not ourselves. He gets the credit for all moral victories. When we come to these stories, we need to avoid the temptation to take a, a deep, long look within ourselves. There's a popular thought today that says the more you look within yourself, the more you get in touch with your inner being and your inner soul, the more you will find the answers that you need. That's a bunch of bunk. We need to be looking away from ourselves and toward Jesus. We need to be aware of who we are. We need to be aware of the, the reality of the human heart, our propensity to sin, but we look away from ourselves and toward Jesus. I love the title of Ali Beth Stuckey's book, written to, to women primarily, You're Not Enough and That Is Okay. So much around us says that you're enough. You just need to realize that you're enough. That is what should be avoided. The human heart isn't the wellspring of life containing all of the answers that you need. That's not what Proverbs 4.23 says. But the heart is deceitful and wicked and leads you astray. Another thing here when it comes to the scriptures that we ought to recognize, as we saw last week, God has a plan of redemption that was put in motion before the foundation of the earth. Therefore, it follows that everything written in this book has to do with that story of redemption and is related to it. 
Often we don't see the Old Testament that way. We don't see the stories and the characters of the Old Testament, but everything that is in this book is in here for a purpose. It's God's unfolding plan of redemption. This goes along with the the people of the Old Testament as well. Look for the redemptive purpose that God has for including their story in the scriptures. I mean, when we come to this and we want to avoid the the traps of a a heroes and villains approach, these are good things to, to keep in mind when it comes to the scripture and in particularly when it comes to the biographical sections of the Old Testament. So how do we achieve it? David Murray gives us several ways we can look to Jesus when it comes to the characters of the Old Testament. Let me just briefly give you uh, some of the ways here that he, he gives that we can see Jesus in the characters of the Old Testament. The, the first is what Murray calls uh, the control of Jesus. And what he means by that is that since Jesus sovereignly controls everything and everybody, it follows that he ordered every single Old Testament event and every single person. So a text might not explicitly mention Jesus, but Jesus is implied in every text because these people are all part of God's plan of redemption a plan that was put into place before the foundation of the world, as we saw last week. And as we read of people and circumstances in the scriptures, we know that all of this is part of God's unfolding plan of redemption, pointing toward Christ. An example of this would be the the faith of Abraham. Right away in Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham had faith, God counted that faith as righteousness. Now, Now, Jesus isn't mentioned there, but we can be... We, we can with confidence say that the object of Abraham's faith was none other than Christ, even though Abraham didn't know his name. This is made clear in the New Testament, where we hear of the, the gospel being proclaimed to Abraham, where Paul uses this point in the life of Abraham as a foundation for his teaching on justification by faith alone. The whole story of Job is an example of this as well, isn't it? The circumstances in Job's life were not things that happened haphazardly, but were controlled by God's sovereignty, and they were controlled by God's sovereignty for a purpose. Another thing that we should remember when we read biographical portions of the Old Testament is that any good accomplished by Old Testament characters is because of the work of the Spirit of Christ in them. It is because of this that these characters in the Old Testament are often pointing toward Christ. That there's what we call in the characters of the Old Testament clear typology. That there is an analogy in that they point to the character of Jesus Christ. The Spirit moving in them points us to Christ. That's how David Murray puts it. Perhaps the the clearest example of this to me is the life of Joseph. We often look at Joseph's life and how he forgives his brothers and we say there is great application here. The application here is you need to forgive like Joseph forgives. Of course that's true, but it falls remarkably short. We must be aware that the only reason For Joseph's ability 
to forgive like this is because of the spirit of Christ that is at work in him. And because of this, our attention should be drawn to the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. Joseph then is a type. It's his typology. It's a type of Christ. He points to him for the good that he does is only because the spirit is at work in him. He gets credit for it all. And brothers and sisters, any good that we do, any fruit that we bear, it's because the spirit of God is working in us. There's something else that we ought to remember. And I know I'm I'm flying through this because I only have a certain amount of time. There there is something else that we need to remember when it comes to the Old Testament characters. When they they broke the the law, right? This This is something that happens frequently in the Old Testament. We read of laws and we read of them being broken. We need to remember that the law that was being broken is the law of Christ. It is Christ's law. When they were rebelling, they were rebelling against Christ. We we can't separate the the Trinity and say, wait a minute. No, Jesus is in the New Testament. They weren't rebelling against Christ. They were rebelling against this member of the God. That doesn't work. The the Trinity is is together. There's unity there. And when they were rebelling, they were rebelling against Christ. It was Christ that was offended but yet it is Christ that came to this world and lived the perfect life and died to redeem law breakers. When David sinned and committed adultery with Bathsheba, for instance, when he committed murder, he was breaking the law of Christ. Is David the the villain here? Absolutely. Yes, do not commit adultery. That is a command, that is the obvious application. But even more than this is when David sinned, he was sinning against his Savior. He was sinning against the coming Christ whom he loved, whom he trusted. And when he repents, he says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognized that he was sinning against his Savior. Another thing to remember is that when the Bible characters sin and do what is evil, and again, there are a lot of examples of this, isn't there? Just think of the kings of Israel and Judah. But what does it reveal? The fact that that all of these people in the Old Testament sin over and over. This person did what was evil in the sight of God. Why is it there? Why does the Bible tell us over and over and over that these people sinned? Why does it give us graphic detail of their sins and what they did was evil? Why do we have tale after tale of people doing evil in the sight of God? When the reader recognizes that the Bible is a story of redemption, it reveals the longing, the need that they had for a savior. As we read through the Old Testament and we get to these portions, even the the positive sections where God uh, saves Noah and his family, for instance, it isn't long before we see that even Noah needs a savior. As we read the Old Testament, there is a, a tremendous longing for a redeemer, for the one who will come and, and save them and deal with the curse of sin and death forever. 
One of the traps that people fall into frequently is that they set the Old Testament up against the New Testament. For many, they they do not try to do this. They might even have a a great proverbial red flag that that comes up in their mind when they hear uh, guys like Andy Stanley suggest that we need to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. And they might see the dangers in that kind of thinking, but yet we think too often that Jesus' mercy is displayed in the New Testament, but the Old Testament is about justice and wrath. God in the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And when we start thinking along these lines, we miss something really important about the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament is full of of the truth that, that our sins are serious, that our sins offend God, and God does get offended. And God is justice. He's just. In fact, the entire sacrificial system tells us what our sins deserve. They deserve death. And in reality, salvation, hope, was never to be found in the death of an animal. The author of Hebrews makes it clear the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. John Calvin asked this question. He says this, For what is more vain or absurd than for men to offer a loathsome stench from the fat of cattle in order to reconcile themselves to God? What is more absurd is more vain than that. These sacrifices then were shadows and figures pointing to the reality of Christ. And according to Calvin, anything else is just absurd. And, and you're vain to believe that the, the remedy for your spiritual condition could be found in the death of an animal. I think Calvin is spot on. David Murray says it a little bit differently. He says it this way, no spiritually minded Israelite ever imagined that an animal sacrifice could form the basis of his salvation. Rather, it made him long in faith for a better and greater sacrifice. Now, having said this, is it true? Does the Old Testament major on the justice of God, the New Testament, the love of God? If you want to see the love and mercy of Jesus, do you only look to the New Testament? Do you throw out the Old Testament in in that regard? Of course not. The fact is we all deserve to die for our sins. We see that in the Old Testament. We see people punished rightly for their sin. We see God using various means to accomplish his purpose. But we also see the great love of Jesus displayed in the fact that he saved David, for instance, an adulterer, a murderer. Jesus saved Rahab. Didn't have to. She didn't deserve it. Just as David didn't deserve to be saved, Rahab didn't either. The mercy of God is displayed all throughout the Old Testament. When we think about these biographical stories in the Old Testament and we see conversion, for instance, We see people uh, coming to to faith in in God. We recognize that these were not converted to God in a general sense in the Old Testament, which is how we're tempted to see it. But these were, as David Murray says, converted to Christ in particular. The sinners in the Old Testament that were in desperate need of a savior were saved just as we are by the mere grace of God through faith in Christ. Let's think about it this way. Even though these in the Old Testament didn't have the complete picture, they were not mere moralists or legalists either. 
But these were people that put their faith and trust in a coming Messiah. And if we fail to realize this, then our sermons and our Bible reading is going to be moralistic and legalistic. Let's just take a moment and think about Old Testament faith. I've already said that these had faith in the, in the coming Messiah, but that brings up some questions that we must answer. But let me just say this before I go any further, and that is that if this is true, that Old Testament faith was faith in the Messiah, that these were saved by God's grace through faith as we are, then to speak of the Old Testament as a book of works and the New Testament as uh, in grace and to divide the two is really wrong. What it means is that people in the Old Testament were not saved by works. They were saved by grace through faith. And it's faith in the Messiah. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is is Hebrews chapter 11. All the examples of, of faith in that chapter. Not faithfulness, faith. But One of the things that we learn from all of this is that their faith was Christ-centered. And we know that from the emphasis of the author in the 10 chapters that come before the faith chapter. Now, when we say that these were saved by grace through faith, as we are, we also recognize that in the Old Testament, their faith was shadowy compared to New Testament faith. These were looking forward to something to come. They they couldn't see it like the New Testament saints would. So it brings up a reasonable question. And the question is this, what did these Old Testament saints believe about Jesus? Well, right from the onset, they believed at least three things. They believed him to be a man, first of all. This might go without saying, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is called the prolegomena, it's the, the first gospel promise, we see that the Messiah would be a man born of the seed of a woman. These also believed that the Messiah would suffer. The serpent would bruise his heel. He would suffer. Finally, they believed that the Messiah would ultimately conquer, for he would crush the head of the serpent. This is... This is from the the first shadowy promise of the gospel in the Old Testament. And as time goes on, these seeds of the gospel are developed throughout the book. They become more clear as time goes on. When it comes to Hebrews chapter 11, Pastor Charles Drew was commenting on that passage and the faith of these in the Old Testament. And he says this, quote, Their faith points us to Jesus, and it does so in at least three ways. He is the object of their faith, one. He is the perfect model of their imperfect faith, two. And he is the builder of their faith, three. Remember those things. I find this pastor's statement so intriguing because the same thing can be said about mine. Yes, their faith was shadowy. They didn't have the first, they didn't have all of the complete picture but they had Christ as the object. I rest in Christ alone for my salvation. He is the the model for my imperfect faith because my faith is far from perfect. I have that in common with the saints of the Old Testament and he is the builder of my faith. Now, that should breed a bit of humility in us all. Did you catch it? Jesus is the object of our faith. It is in him alone that we rest. 
And that faith that we rest in, that we trust in Christ is both given by Christ and built by Christ to look like his, the one that was perfect. Let me just share a little more from Pastor Drew's book. His book is Ancient Love Song, Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And he said this, did Moses know the human name of Christ? No. Did Abraham know in detail how the heavenly country would be one for him? No. But their limited knowledge did not keep them from looking to the, na- the same Savior in whom we trust. Jesus Christ has always been the hope of his people, whether they have known his name or not. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Joseph, Rahab, Gideon, and so many more all looked to Jesus Christ for they all died in faith looking to the promises of God and the promises whose final yes is in Jesus Christ. There's a lot more that we could say here, but for the sake of time, let me just close with one more thing. There are many that think that that perhaps even subconsciously that the people in the Old Testament were really just about earthly things. They were about earthly cities, earthly treasures, and the rewards of those in the Old Testament were earthly rewards. When it comes to the New Testament then, we're after spiritual rewards, eternal cities, those things. This is a wrong way of thinking about the Old Testament. The, The fact is Jesus calls us through the lives of Old Testament saints, and he calls us to learn from these characters, and then he calls us to in turn follow Christ. Of course, Jesus isn't mentioned specifically, but Jesus is there in all of it. As one scholar put it, behind every word is the mind of Christ and the salvation of Jesus. Let me just see if I can illustrate this. I've made a reference to Hebrews chapter 11 a few times. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says this, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. Abraham, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. That's verse nine. So earthly cities, earthly rewards, one could make that case if you just looked at verse nine. But why did he go? He trusted that the Lord, he believed in him. But here we are told in verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Isn't that something the city was, as we saw last week, designed and built before the foundations of the world for those that he would come to save? This is what Abraham is longing for in faith. Not earthly reward. Heavenly reward, a heavenly city. If we go on a few verses down, we read, those all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What were they longing for? What was their faith all about? A heavenly reward in a heavenly city. They didn't just think materialistically. My friends, I hope that you can see my great desire in this series of messages this summer, which is that we would approach the Old Testament with a different posture. 
that that we would come to it longing to see Christ, that we would see Christ more clearly, that the Old Testament would would point us toward him, that we would long for the the salvation that they were longing for, that we would see their, their longing and we would want it. I can't help but thinking of that portion of scripture that we started with in David and Goliath, where he says that he's going to to strike down Goliath. And it's so prophetic because he, he does it. And he says he does this because so that all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel. And this assembly may know that the Lord saves. But notice what he says then. The Lord saves not with sword or spear. And it begs a question, doesn't it? How does the Lord save? How does he save with somebody that's really unlikely, like a shepherd boy, like the son of a carpenter who came and lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death, who paid the price that you and I deserve to pay, who bore the weight of our sin, who in faith grants us a perfect righteousness apart from our own, who takes our sins and and deposits them in the deepest part of the ocean, never to be brung up again. He saves through Jesus Christ and we trust and rest in what he has accomplished on our behalf. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.